nicely with the theme of our message today as we continue our study through the book of Philippians entitled Partners in the Gospel. If you're a guest here with us today, let me say thank you for coming to Fellowship Baptist Church, whether you're traveling through, seeing family, or um, normally if you come to Liberal, you're here on purpose, so uh, I'm sure you're here for a reason. Thank you for coming today, or whether you're just a regular, thank you for making worship a priority today. If you are a first-time guest, if you've never filled out a connection card, we're going to say more about that at the end of the message, but those are located in your worship guide. They're also located in the back seat um, pocket of the chair in front of you, and even now, if you would take those out and fill that out so we have a record of your visit, drop it in the offering plate. We'll give you some motivation for that here in just a little bit, but we're just thankful uh, that you're here today. I also want to invite those back for our family night. You'll hear a little more about that um, on the announcement video at the end of the service, but we're having a first ever family night. Our youth pastor is heading that up. It's going to be a great time with an ice cream social afterwards, so I hope you'll come back and enjoy some great fellowship and fun tonight. Philippians chapter number one, and we're going to begin reading in verse 19, and we'll read through verse number 26. It'll be on the screen if you didn't bring your copy of God's Word today. If you did, follow along in the Bible. Verse number 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I what not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. The title of the message today is Magnifying Christ No Matter the Cost. That should be our prayer. It should be our desire. What does magnify mean? To make him large. To make him big. To make much of Jesus no matter the cost. Father, we need you today. Tune our hearts to your word. Ask that you'd prevent distraction. Help us with fatigue. And Lord, get glory and honor from your word and make a difference that no man can take credit for. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. January the 2nd, 1956, was the day that 29-year-old Jim Elliott had waited for most of his life. Almost three years of ministry in the jungle and many hours of planning and praying had led him to this day. Because within hours, he and four other missionaries would be setting up camp in the territory of a dangerous and uncivilized Indian tribe known then as the Alcas. The Alcas had killed all the outsiders ever caught in their area. But even though it was dangerous, Jim Elliott had no doubt God wanted him to tell them about Jesus. After several attempts to, to befriend the Alcas from a distance, Jim and the other three missionaries with him decided to fly over to the Alca territory and meet a few of them. They showed sincere friendship and said they'd bring a few others next time. Six days later, two Alca women jumped in the river. 
and walked, began to make their way over to Jim Elliott and the other missionaries. He got excited, and he went over to meet them. And right when he got close, he knew these ladies didn't appear to be as friendly as they did from a distance. All of a sudden, he heard the cry of what sounded like men screaming. And in the jungle, out from the jungle, appeared hundreds of these Alka Indians, these warriors with spears in their hand. Within seconds, Jim had to decide, am I going to use my gun or am I not? It was a key decision because before he ever went to Alka territory, he promised God, I will never shoot an Alka Indian who doesn't know Jesus in order to save myself. Instead of defending himself, he left his gun in his holster. And him, as well as the other missionaries with him, were killed. Jim Elliott is quoted as saying this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Thankfully, his death served to magnify Christ as his wife Elizabeth Elliot was able to move to the Alka village just two years later when they became a friendly tribe. And you can read it, you can even watch a movie about it, but many, many Alkas have become Christian since. And I could have read a number of stories down through history of men and women with the courage and the bravery and the willingness, like Jim Elliot, to magnify Christ no matter the cost. And it makes me wonder, would I have done that? Have you ever thought about that? If you were put in that position, would you make much of Christ? Or would you stay silent? Would you have taken out your gun? Or cared more about their soul than your comfort? I know you're thinking, well, I don't really have to entertain that question because it probably won't happen to me. I don't anticipate going outside today and having Indians with spears ready to spear me for going to church. And that's fair enough, but what about if you're diagnosed with a rare and untreatable cancer and you're given six months to live? How confident are you that you would magnify Christ through the rest of your days? Or would you get bitter and angry? What about if your spouse of 40 or 50 years dies and leaves you alone feeling like there's not much to live for anymore? How confident are you that you would still make the most of the days God gave you to live and and you would serve Him and magnify Him even though you can't do it with your best friend any longer? What about if you had a lot of life in front of you, but you were faced with one setback after another, one disappointment after another, nothing ever went right in your life, and you truly felt that there was no point to go on any longer? How confident are you that you would magnify Christ through that difficult season of life? This week, I saw on Facebook a good preacher friend of Pastor and I's named Richard King. Been in full-time ministry for over 40 years, preaching the Word of God. His most recent ministry was in Pittsburgh, Kansas, where he was resurrecting a church that merely got down to, I think, one or two members. And he made a habit of going all the way around the United States to these churches that were once thriving but were now dying, and he would resurrect them and bring life back into them, and God used him mightily. And he's in his 60s and just got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I believe his last Sunday is either today or was last Sunday, preaching. 
stepping down from the pastorate, moving to Houston, Texas to get treatment. And I don't know if you've, if you've watched the horrifying consequences and effects of Alzheimer's, but if you were diagnosed with that at age 60, I can't help but think in my mind, knowing what's ahead of me, is life even worth living? Can I make much of Christ through something like this? No, I know you'll never face angry villagers throwing spears at you, but you very well may face a life and death situation where you have to choose, am I going to make much of Christ or not? What if it's possible to have the confidence that you will? No, I know you're not in that situation perhaps today, but what if that situation comes upon you as soon as tomorrow? What if you can walk out of church having the confidence, I will magnify Christ no matter what? I believe you can because the Apostle Paul did. Even before his trial in the Roman courts, knowing he was facing life or death, here's what he said in verse number 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always. Now this sounds like a confident man. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Watch this, whether it be by life or by death. You remember what Paul's been through? For two years, Paul's been in house arrest, chained 24-7 to one of Caesar's personal bodyguards. He was awaiting trial on some trumped-up charges because he was a Roman citizen, which meant he could appeal to Caesar's highest court, the highest court in the Roman Empire. He was going to be able to stand before him. It's much like us standing before the Supreme Court of the United States. Yet Paul had no idea at the time that he wrote this verse what Caesar would choose to do in his trial. Would he release Paul? Or would he sentence Paul? All Paul knows is that he's going to have a chance to exalt Christ like never before in the whole world. He's going to have an unbelievable opportunity to magnify Christ as he stands in the highest court of the Roman Empire and defends the gospel. It's not like Paul's even nervous. I didn't see any nervousness in that verse. I didn't see any uh, shyness, any uncertainty. I believe that verse shows us because it says it's his earnest expectation. It's my hope, he says. I think he's eagerly awaiting this opportunity. I don't think he's one of those people that, that, that kind of has a little worn, up, worn out old wallet-sized picture of Jesus in the back of his robe pocket, and if someone asks him, hey, can you show me Jesus? Let me see if I can dig out. A, I know it's wrinkled and old, but here, here's Christ. No, Christ was his life. He had like a full-length, full-size poster board picture of Christ in front of him. You couldn't even see it behind, you couldn't even see Paul behind it. Christ was everything. Christ saved him. Christ changed him. Christ freed him. Christ gave him a calling. Christ gave him a church. Christ gave him friends. Christ gave him a purpose. Christ has a future for him. To Paul, Christ was everything. And so to him, he was very, very confident, even before the time came, that when he got that opportunity to stand before that court, Caesar's court, He was going to come through with flying colors. No, look at the verse. He says, I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to be nervous. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to be shy. I'm not going to get in front of them judges and then all of a sudden get scared. 
I will not back up. I will not shut up. How is he this confident? That's my question. And that's the question of the text. How could Paul say in a life and death situation that he will boldly magnify Christ no matter the cost? It tells us in the very next verse. It starts with the word for. When you see the word for, you could, you could also say the word because. I'm going to magnify Christ in life or death because, or for to me to live is Christ, he says. And to die is gain. Look up here, let's study together. Paul said, I'm going to magnify Christ in my life, even if it means death, because for me to live, well, it's Christ. For me to die is gain. Paul's saying, I can boldly magnify Christ in this kind of circumstance because I have a proper perspective of living and dying. Well, what do you mean? What does he mean by that? What's his perspective? He says this, if Caesar decides to release me after I defend the gospel to the court, if he says, oh, those are trumped up charges, you can go free, then here's my perspective of life. I get to serve Christ longer. To live as Christ. But if for some reason he sentenced me to death, which Paul probably felt was somewhat likely in the moment, because he just wanted to make peace with the people and Paul's accusers, then he said, you know what, that's okay too. Because dying means seeing Christ sooner. Now you can kill me, but I can, I'm going to see Christ sooner. And you can release me because that means I get to serve Christ longer. Do you get it? Now I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute. How can he say death is gain? Because Paul's making it sound like a win-win situation. Either one's fine. Kill me or release me. Because I know you're thinking, no, there's actually one that is pretty high on my priority list, and it would be called living. And one that's on the bottom shelf, and that would be called dying. But Paul didn't think about it that way. He didn't have that perspective. It's not like he was weirdly volunteering to die. Kill me. Behead me. Drown me. Martyr me. No, he wasn't a psycho. But he wasn't scared to die. Do you get it? Especially if it meant that his death would make much of Christ. So let's do this. Let's talk about these two perspectives. Let's start with this perspective on death that Paul had because it's the same perspective that we are going to need if we want to magnify Christ in this kind of situation. Here's his perspective. To die is to see Christ. Look at verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two. In other words, I can't choose. Here's my first option. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Okay, here was Paul's perspective on death. It was just a departure. No, when he said that I have a desire to depart, you know what that word depart means? When Paul would uh, use this word in his language... He's referring to this term. It means to break up camp. It's what the soldiers would do whenever they had tents. They, they, they would say, let's depart. That doesn't mean they would just merely walk away. It meant that they would pick up the tents, pick up the belong, belongings, and they would go home. They would depart. I, I, I'm interested how many enjoy camping. Would you raise your hand if you enjoy camping? You are publicly saying, I'm weird. You can put your hands down. I don't like camping. I thought about it this week. Tyler, why don't you like camping? Because some people take their sons out. I have a seven-year-old son. I would just rather take him to a hotel. 
And I thought, you know, there are three basic reasons I don't like camping. Here's, here's the first, because I like every journey to end with comfort. So, so if I'm going to take out of my time, put the miles on my car, put up with crazy drivers and slow drivers in the passing lane that shouldn't be in the passing lane, and I make time to get there, I don't want to finally arrive and then have to build a tent. And then have to sleep in the midst of humidity and have to sleep with, with crawling critters everywhere. It's just not, not my gig. I'd rather show up to a place where the bed's already made, the mattress is nice, there's Wi-Fi, there's ESPN, there, there's good food. I don't have to make it myself. I don't have to go kill it. It's comfort. My dad's amen to me. I was raised right. Here's the second reason. Wildlife. Now, I'm not talking about like your pets, like, like a dog. I, I, somebody said it really well this last week. I heard him say that, that dogs are the ideal humans. They're loving, they're furry, they're kind, and they don't talk. The <laughs> ideal human. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like real life, wild life, like bears and snakes and spiders and ticks. Listen to me. I don't want some blood-sucking bug to crawl up my pants and get in a place that's not supposed to be and give me a disease I was never supposed to have because I'm spending time with my son. I don't want to have that. The third reason is, is frankly, there's just no toilets, generally. I know some of you fancier people thinking, I got my own private toilet, my own private mobile home. Well, God bless your rich soul. Us normal people, us normal people got to set up a tent and we're faced with two options. A mold-infested public restroom or going to the bathroom outside and burying our poop like an animal does. Now you tell me, why is camping good? But some of you like it, truly. Some of you actually enjoy it. It saves you money. Whatever. It just, you love it. Even you who like it know this. That there comes a time in that camping trip where you're just ready to depart. Okay, I don't care how much you like the outdoors. Okay, you're not going to stay out there forever. You've had enough of the boonies, enough of the insects, enough of the crazy noises, enough of no AC. You've had enough of that kind of stuff. You're ready to go home. As much as you've enjoyed it, it was fun. But you're ready to break camp and go home. And Paul was saying this, listen, Church of Philippi, here's my perspective of death. I know you're scared to die. I know you don't want to die, but I've had a great life. I was once persecuting churches, now I'm starting churches. I, will, I was once headed to hell, now I'm headed to heaven. God has given me an amazing life where I've made an amazing difference. And it's been fun, but if I'm honest with you, church, I'm just ready to pack it up and go home. Why, Paul? Because going home means I get to see Jesus. Jesus who loved me, who gave himself for me who saved my wretched soul. Didn't the songwriter have it right? What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, the songwriter said, what a day, glorious day that will be. There's not a one of us that would turn down an opportunity to see Jesus today, to thank him, to praise him, touch him 
We just don't want to have to die to do it. That's not how Paul looked at death. It's not like he was thrilled to be martyred. But he saw death as an opportunity to magnify Christ. And it was okay with him because ultimately he would see Christ. Question, have you ever witnessed somebody that through their death, or even going to a funeral of somebody that already died, and saw that, man, through the testimony of their life, they made much of Christ. I'm going to put a girl on the screen by the name of Dahlia. Put her up there, Dustin. She's actually hugging one of our very own, Courtney Kessler from Fellowship Baptist Church. Courtney's a sophomore at Heartland Baptist Bible College, and that girl that on the right is Dahlia. Dahlia Johnson is 20 years old. She got diagnosed while studying for full-time Christian service with a rare and very scary, scary cancer in stage four. A cancer they've not really had much success treating. She's actually in Mexico right now getting a very rare treatment. Here's what she, I know you probably can't read it, but here's what she posted a couple weeks ago. A 20-year-old who the doctor said there's very little hope of you living. She says, I quote, I feel so unworthy of this disease. That God would choose to use me to be a part of his wonderful mission. What a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for painting with seemingly insignificant tools. This has been the best life I could ever imagine. I am secure. This I know. A modern day Apostle Paul. Would you agree she's possibly going to die way too early? Yet in her potential death, she is magnifying Christ. How can a 20-year-old do that? Because she has the right perspective on death. She said, this I know, this I'm secure, that if I take my last breath and this wicked disease takes my life, I will see Jesus. And he'll be made, he'll be made, there'll be much made of him the day they bury me because they'll know I live my life for Christ. I want to show you another picture of a lady named Sally. My, my dad has told you about this lady before that she was at my brother's funeral earlier on in the year. I think there were well over a thousand people at that funeral when Pastor Mike stood up and preached a clear presentation of the gospel. He said, if any of you want to accept Christ, I'm going to be in the back, then you come by and let me know there was one lady that did it out of over a thousand people there. He said, Brother Mike, I, I want to know Jesus. And she, he, he went away from the crowd and led Sally to Christ. Sally later got baptized in the First Baptist Church of Burden, Kansas, and is an active member there still. Brother Tyler, did you like that your brother died? No, I hate it. He was 35 with three kids under the age of seven. I hate it. I don't like it. Quite frankly, I still don't think it's fair. And the truth is, I don't have to like it to have a good perspective on it. Because here's the truth. Christ was magnified through his death. There was, a, there was a lady, a mom, saved. It's going to be in heaven through my brother's death. I don't think I'm godly enough to say that, that if that was the only way she was going to get saved, then God, take my brother. I'm not there yet, if I'm honest with you. 
But now I can look back at it and I can say, well, God's making much of, of his son Jesus through a tragic situation like that. This was Paul's perspective. Hey, if Christ can be magnified through me, even if it means death, so be it. I'll see Jesus. Would to God we would have that kind of perspective on death. But I've got to talk about this. What about those who don't know Jesus? What's death to you? I'll tell you what death is to you that don't know Jesus. It's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Please listen closely. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. If you reject Christ on earth, there will be no more chance after you take your last breath. And you will stand before what the Bible calls a great white throne judgment. Where the book of Revelation is clear. That a lake of fire has been prepared not for you. For the devil. But because God is a just God. If you reject him. That's where you'll go. Please listen. It's a place of eternal torment. It's a place your loved ones can't pray you out of. It's a place of no retreat. And so if you're scared of dying and you're lost, kindly, kindly, I say, you shouldn't be scared of dying. Here's the good news. You don't have to die without Jesus. No, Jesus died for you. He rose again to give you eternal life with him in heaven. I'll explain it later. You'll have an opportunity later to accept the free gift of the gospel and of salvation. But could I ask you, can you go back to a place where you've done that? Where like Sally, you, you, you looked up a preacher, you looked up a parent, you looked up a grandparent, you talked to a youth pastor, whatever the case might be, and says, show me how I can get saved, how I can accept Jesus. Can you point back to a place? I can. The foot of my daddy's bed. I was seven years old is where I came to know Jesus. I can't remember everything I said. All I can remember is walking down that hall and saying, Daddy, I want to get saved, and him showing me from a big old full-color family Bible how I can do it. And he, and he said, just repeat this prayer after me. And I meant it from the depths of my heart, and I repeated that prayer after him, and I know I'm a child of God. Can you say that? Or if for some reason you were to die today, you're like, you know what, that's really a scary thought. Hang on to that thought because I want to talk to you about it in a few moments. The Apostle Paul in the next verse is going to make a transition with one word. Look at verse 24. Nevertheless. In our language you could say, however. So basically Paul is saying, to depart and be with Christ would be far better for me right now. However, nevertheless... To abide in the flesh is more needful for you, church of Philippi. And having that confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Paul is saying this. Please look up here and get this. Because there's another side of this coin, and it's life. And he's saying, listen, if I had my druthers, I'd probably go be with Christ, if I'm honest with you. But I think what serves the purposes of God more is to be released from Caesar's court and to stay here a little longer and be a help to this church, to help you grow your faith and joy in the Lord. And he says, listen, if it takes me staying here and serving you longer than I even want to in order to magnify Christ and fulfill his greater purposes, I will make the most of it. You see, Paul had a right perspective on death to die is to see Christ. But he also had a proper perspective on life 
And it's the same perspective we should have so long as God keeps us here. And it's this, to live is to serve Christ. I can't help but think that there are some in here who have the same nevertheless, the same struggle. They're in a straight betwixt two, like Paul was. Man, I kind of, I'm just to a place in life where I wouldn't mind just going to heaven. But at the same time, God's chosen to leave me here. How do I magnify Christ if that's my story? I'm thinking about the widow. Our widower in our congregation today who misses their spouse so much. For they spent 30 or 40 or 50 years doing life with them. Your lives became so intertwined over the course of time that you couldn't even imagine living a day without each other. But you've had to bury your best friend. And it still hurts to this day, especially when you come to church by yourself. And you eat dinner by yourself and you go to sleep by yourself. You've got family and you've got friends, but you know it's just not the same anymore. And the thought has occurred to you, what do I even have to live for? Everybody says, have joy. Live it up. Make the most of each day, but my best days are behind me. Where's my purpose now? I just wish God would take me to heaven and I would say to you, God makes no mistakes. And if he was done with you, you wouldn't be here today. If he didn't have a purpose in this world for you, you would not be breathing. And I want to encourage you to develop the perspective of Paul. To live is to serve Christ longer. Even if I have to do it alone, I'll serve Christ. Even if I don't have the resources and the energy that I once had, I'll just do the best with what I have, and I'll serve Christ with the days I have remaining. I went to Brookdale this past week to see one of our shut-in members Many of you know him, John Malina's wife, Beverly, is sitting back there. I went and saw John in light of the fact that I was going to preach this text, because I know he'd be a living example of this. And I walked in, and John was eating daylight donuts. So you know he was making most of his life. He's there with his friends, and I got in a conversation with John, and I, I said, John, do you need anything? Can I do anything for you? And he went on to quote Philippians 4.19, and he said this, no, son. I have a God that supplies all my need according to his riches and glory. How about you? I said, John, what's keeping you busy? Man, he's frail. If, you, if you've seen him, he's hunched over, he's frail. He can't do a lot physically. But here's what he told me. Well, every, every Tuesday I get to preach. We hold a Bible study, I get to lead. Every Thursday I get to go to church. What's John's perspective? Well, I don't think he would mind going to heaven today. He's told me that. He's ready. But so long as God is keeping him here, he's going to make the most of it. He's going to magnify Christ. Even if it's one retired individual alone, he's just going to go sit there and encourage them and speak life into them and teach the Bible to them. I can't help but think about the person who might not be so old. But you face one setback of another, one disappointment after another. Nothing's going right. You're not as close to your family anymore. You're on the bottom of the ladder in your job. Marriage doesn't even seem like a possibility. And raising a family is like a distant dream. 
And you think, what do I even have to live for? Nobody believes in me. No one's invested in me. I've let enough people down in my life. Listen to me. I'll tell you what you had to live for. Jesus. Even if not everything has gone right in your life, even if you're living in less than ideal circumstances in so many ways, would you hear me? If you're still breathing, God's still working. If you're not dead, God's not done. He wants to use you to make much of his son Jesus if you'll just have that perspective. A diving accident in 1967 left Joni Erickson Tata, quadriplegic, in a wheelchair. Today she's an internationally known mouth artist, a talented vocalist, a radio host, an author of 17 books, an advocate for disabled persons worldwide. She's magnifying Christ through her life, but it wasn't always that way. If you know her testimony, in the early days of her injury, she was depressed, committed, tried to commit suicide several times. She finally turned to God one evening when she said this, I was so sick and tired of the despair and the feelings of self-pity, I cried out, God, if I can't die, show me how to live. She said, I'm not kidding, the next morning I woke up a different person. What happened? She gained the proper perspective of life. She tried to end it many times, and God wouldn't let her. And she finally came to the conclusion, if God's going to leave me down here, I'm going to serve him the best I can. I want to close by asking you this. How would you complete this sentence? For me, living is. Do you see the first two words of that? It says, for me. You know why? Because this has to be a personal decision. Every one of you make and I make. What is living to you? I hope you would say Christ. Or would you have to honestly fill in the blank with a cheap substitute? Like this, living is money. Or living is pleasure. Or living is power. Or living is beauty. Or living is having fun. It's entertainment. Well, then following the logic of Paul's testimony, you would then have to follow that with filling in the second blank. For me, dying is. Think about it. If you fill in the first blank with money, then you should fill in the second blank with this. Dying is being broke. After all, you can't take money with you. If you fill the first blank with pleasure, then you would have to conclude dying is having no more pleasure. It's not feeling good. If you fill in the first blank with living is power, then you would conclude dying is being powerless. Well, what about saying living is beauty? You must conclude dying is losing all beauty. If you live for entertainment, then your gravestone would have to read dying is having no more fun. In short, what will you live for? I would pray after today's message you would come to the altar and say, God, help me to be able to write this. For me, living is serving Christ. And for me, dying is seeing Christ. Here's the point of the message in one sentence. Would you, would you take it home with you? You will magnify Christ in your life and in your death when you realize that living means serving Christ longer and dying means seeing Christ sooner if you're like me and you've got a lot of life ahead of you death isn't a great thought 
it's hard for us to say death is gain. And so we need to ask God to realign us with the truth that we could die tomorrow. And I could get a rare form of cancer today. And so God realigned my perspective that if you, if you give me six months to live unexpectedly, that I wouldn't be scared of that. Because death means seeing you sooner. And I want to make much of you through it. And for those of you who would, you don't care if you die, young or old, then you need to ask God, realign my perspective about life. And God, help me to realize that if you want me down here, even though I don't want to be, I will serve you, no matter the cost. Three ways to respond to the message. If death scares you because you don't know Jesus, listen to this good news of the gospel. Here's what you need to do today. You need to admit that you are a sinner. For all the sin, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. You've messed up. You've disappointed God. You've sinned against God. I have too. Admit it. Admit it. Here's the next thing you do. You believe that Jesus died for your sin. He's not a figment of your imagination. Jesus was a real man who lived a real life and died on a real cross and suffered a real death for you. Well, don't I have to get baptized? No, you don't have to get baptized. Ask the thief on the cross. He got saved, never got baptized, and God said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You have to be baptized? Well, I need to clean up my life before I come to Christ, because after all, I mean, i got to change. No, Christ changes you. Don't get the cart before the horse. You accept him. He'll make much of your life. You try to do it on your own, you'll be a miserable person. Admit you're a sinner. Believe, place your faith, the finished work on the cross, and then you do this. You call upon God to save. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be. What does that look like, Brother Ty? What does it mean? It means this, that in a, in a gospel invitation like this, when we're about to stand to our feet, and every head will be bowed and every eye will be closed, and Christians will be praying everywhere around the altar, I'm convinced, that you slip out and you meet our pastor right down here. And he can take a Bible in a room all by yourself and not force you but explain to you how you can call upon God to save you. And you bow your head in humility and you say, God, be my Savior. To be the greatest decision you've ever made. Will you do that today? Does death scare you? Doesn't have to. Doesn't have to. But Tyler, I know I'm saved. Response number two. You come to the altar. And if, if you need a realigned perspective on death, God, give it to me. You need a realigned perspective on life, God, give it to me. Response number three. God says, when I look at my house, I need to see prayer. So much so, I need to be able to call it a house of prayer. Have you prayed in God's house today yet? If not, then, then I'm sure you can find something to pray about. And let me give you one thing everybody in this building can pray about. God, make much of my life. God, help me not to go another breathing moment without making much of Jesus. God, give me that heart. Would you stand to your feet? Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father,